this will be, um, it won't seem encouraging at first. So I give you that forewarning. It, it will seem like odd, frankly, but I hope you will find it incredibly encouraging ultimately pretty soon. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you for this time and these saints. And Lord, thank you for the songs, the children's hour uh, or, or moment, and uh, just this time that we can have together. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray you be with Tafik and the fam and bless them where they are and also with his mother. Lord, would you, would you do a work and, uh, and, and comfort her and assist and just allow things to fall into place that need to happen uh, for her. Also, Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the quick report on Kinsey being better and the family being well. And just pray that you'd continue to protect them and heal them. Lord, now we, we wanna we wanna eat. We we don't just even in the first hour, Lord, I, I wanted to expose some things about Christian meekness. But Lord, we need you to expose things about yourself to us. And I pray that you would help your scriptures to come to life. I pray that you would silence me where I might tend to belabor a point uh, or bore your people. And I pray that your word would just, that'd be the loud point and that it'd be clear and accessible and simple. So please help us now, Lord. Give me clarity and give your people ears to hear and, and attentiveness. Help us to focus and block out distractions or future plans. And Lord, I pray that your people will be so invigorated with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. And I want to recommend, a, well, read something to you from a book on this subject matter of union with Christ. That's what we're talking about right now. We're going to talk about the connection we have with Jesus. And I just want to read, there's an author that wrote on this subject, very good book. Um, and there's some highlights that he, that he made that I think are great that kind of get it, set us up for this. He said, he said this, today I'm a pastor of a church in Los Angeles full of people who come from many different walks of life and from all over our city. They have questions similar to the ones I've asked myself many years ago. How do I connect God to my daily life? Maybe you ask that question sometime. A skeptical friend once asked me, if the gospel is supernatural, as you say, then why doesn't it seem to make more of a difference in the lives of so many who claim to believe it? It's real. And that's on us. Um, that's a great question, he says, but not just for skeptics. Because the gap between what Christians claim is true about themselves and what we often see when we look in the mirror, because of that gap, uh, the gap is real. And so here's one more thing. He said, uh, I'll never forget the first sermon I ever preached. As I stood at the door afterward, greeting people on their way out, one older man patted me on the shoulder as if I were a young Cub Scout and said, well, that was a nice sermon. Now back to the real world. Then he walked out. He said, if, if like that man, you never try to connect the truths of God to your everyday life, if you construct a wall 
to divide the sacred nice, nice sermons from the secular real world, if you keep Jesus and his authority safely tucked away in heaven where he can't threaten your way of doing things, then this gap won't concern you. It won't even occur to you that it should. Now, I, I read that because to me, that, is, that totally resonates with my soul. Again, I want to know what in this book will matter on a Tuesday. What will matter when me and my wife have a disagreement? What will matter when the kids, when I have to choose very intentionally to love my kids? What will matter when I'm at work and a coworker stabs me in the back? When, what in this word, what in eternity, what in the scriptures, what is true that matters to my everyday life? where they connect, they intersect, and I'm able to realize that. And I think the answer, this author actually says that the heart and soul of the gospel is union with Jesus. But there's a problem. We often feel like it's far off, it's distant, you know. Oh, that's great for Stephen. He got stoned and he saw Jesus in heaven. That's good for him, but I am not going to see Jesus while I'm caring for my kids. Not going to see Jesus while I'm making those cool suspenders, while I'm doing midwife stuff. There's no Jesus down there, right? But, but what I want you to see is that actually you should see, you should recognize something that's true about yourself if you're a Christian, that just because you don't perceive it doesn't mean it's not true. And just because you don't think about it and apprehend it doesn't mean it's not just as real as it was in the day of the apostles. Now, the way that I want to do that This is why I say it's kind of unusual and maybe unassuming. Maybe you might say, this is weird. But I want to do it by connecting the scriptures and a prescription that Paul gives to a sinful church. And I want you to take the doctrine he uses to rebuke them and realize in his mind, this is so true. This is so solid that it is a reason not to do the most heinous kinds of sin. He does not argue with a five-step program for purity or accountability partners. He argues from something much greater, and that is the, the actual, tangible, physical presence of the Holy Spirit and union with Christ so that your body is his body, your hands are his hands. What you do with them is what he does with them. There is a oneness that is incredible, and it's all over the scriptures. But I want to start here and just simply show you. So, let's read in uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Again, as we talked about in the first section, they were arguing. And so this is one of their quotes at the beginning here. All things are lawful for me. That's them. Then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. And then they likely quote, all things are lawful for me. Then Paul responds, but I will not be dominated or mastered or enslaved, you might say, by anything And then they probably quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and the other. That word destroy is probably do away with or make of no use. The body, and then this is Paul, the body is not meant, so this is like a command, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's talking about for a Christian especially. Verse 14, now he's going to argue from, from a, a theological and eschatological position. In other words, s- s- they were saying that this body is worthless, and so it doesn't matter what you do. We know later in 1 Corinthians they were denying the resurrection. 
Paul here is going to bring in the resurrection to show them it matters what you do in this body right now. Because this same body is going to be raised. Different, but it will be raised. Verse 14, that's his argument. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now he's going to ask them three rhetorical questions of are they ignorant in verse 15. Do you not know, are you ignorant that your bodies are members of Christ? That's the part I want you to recognize. Are you guys ignorant that your bodies, if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit, no matter who you are, your bodies are bodies of Christ. They're members, they're parts. Now, stick with me here, because if there's a, a sense of a gap, it's because you don't recognize what he's saying about them. Keep, stay with it. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he's going to substantiate that from the Old Testament, from Genesis. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Okay, so real quick, he's saying when this physical earthly union happens, two people become one person, a union, physically. And then he says he's going to parallel that with a spiritual union in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord, we would say by faith, becomes one spirit with him. But he's not just talking about faith. He's talking about union with Christ where his spirit is in you. You'll see that. Then a command in 18. So this is what he's addressing in them. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body It's actually not every other. It's technically every sin. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. And then he's going to contrast that with this. This kind of sin is unique. The sexually immoral person sins. It says against, but it also it's ice. It, It means into to put into. So it's like he's saying you're sinning in your body. Like it's physical. It's happening right there. The sin's there. Sin's against his own body, into his own body. The sin is very close. Verse 19, now, this is the big point. Or do you, are you ignorant, guys, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and because of that, whose possession are you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Conclusion, if that's true, glorify God with your body in your body. Use that body in a way that brings him glory, honor, praise, adoration. So here's what's going on. We already went over it in the first hour, but Paul wrote them a letter letting them know not to associate with people who are sinners who claim to be brothers or Christians. And in 611, look at verse 11, going back up a little, he says, such were some of you. You guys were those kind of sinners Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, all that kind of stuff. So these people had a history. And by the way he writes in uh, 2 Corinthians, it's known that this, this history probably hadn't gone away. Second, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians twelve twenty one says, I fear that when I come, my God may have to humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced So this was a major issue in their day. They were actually going, remember the temple earlier that we talked about for those that were here? They were going in there, yes, they ate, yes, they drank, but there was another thing they did, prostitutes. They did in their day. And this was a big deal. And this was common. And 
the Corinthians, I mean, they dealt with the same kind of things you and I deal with, with sin in the church. Now, I'm not dealing so much with that problem, but I'd like to use the, Paul's theological argument to open your eyes to that union. Because what he's saying is, because of that physical sin, there's some implication about your union with Christ that should keep you from sinning in that way. So in verse 12, Paul quotes them. His rebuttal is not everything's helpful. I won't let any of these things exercise authority over me. In 13, he quotes them again in their theological justification, which what they're saying is this. The created purpose of body parts is to satisfy cravings in the body. And again, they're doing what they did in chapter 8. There's no law to condemn me. Now they're coupling that with their rejection of resurrection. Plus, this body is a throwaway. You remember those, those cameras? You could, disposable cameras? You would, if you're old enough, you'd take a picture, you'd process the film, and you'd trash the camera. Or maybe a, a burner number, you use it, and you trash it. Companies use that to call you. They'll use numbers that they don't really keep. That's how they thought about the body, to satisfy cravings, one-time use. And to that, Paul says, God is going to do away with those things, but your body is going to be resurrected. So here's here's the part that I, I want you to look at. Look at verse 15 and then verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies, your arms, look at your arms. Your torso, that's this part, your legs, mouth, heart, mind, soul, all are body parts of Jesus. What's he basically saying? Are you ignorant to the fact that your physical body is also a physical body part of the Messiah? Shall I then take the physical body part of the Messiah and join it to the physical body of a prostitute? No, I shouldn't. The body parts of two people later on are joining to be one. And he argues from Genesis that, okay, they're joined. And he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is joined to you and you guys are are there. So here's the thing that I want you to see. Paul is saying your body is a what in verse 19? Temple. What was the temple? Where in scripture do you ever see the temple? Where? Old Testament, but like where? Like Jerusalem? But but like, I don't mean like physical location. I mean address, like scripture. Isaiah 6? What was in Isaiah 6? What, what did the temple look like there? Train of his robe filled the temple. Majestic king. Holiness. Angel. Seraphim crying out. Right? Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Guys, do you feel like on a Tuesday that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you feel like when you have indigestion, when you are having a hard time getting out of bed, When you feel sluggish, when you are tempted to be angry, do you feel like you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Probably not. Do you feel like this holy habitation of God? Probably not. But Paul is saying that's what you are if you're a Christian. You actually are a dwelling place for God. Now, there's a brother that I know that um, actually uh, had a hard time with, he actually thinks that, that we're not 
a temple. I mean, what I mean is he thinks it's more theoretical. He doesn't think it's actually like the spirit physically is in us. And I won't go into what he thinks. But anyway, I was trying to tell him, like, brother, look at verse uh, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He's in you. Okay, why does that matter? Because if you're in sin, guys, what what Paul's saying is, if you sin, you shouldn't sin because God's in you. He's there. And when you sin, you cause the body part of God to do the crime with you. You cause him to be in the act. You are causing his body part to partake in wickedness. So don't do it. That's what he's saying to Corinthians. He's really expecting these people to think about that the spirit of Christ is in me, so I shouldn't go do that. He really expects that they're going to hear that and say, man, I'm not going to the temple no more and doing that. That's incredible. That's not how we, when's the last time you heard somebody counsel you like that? Don't do this or that to your wife or your children because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and Christ's body part wouldn't yell at them in that way. Don't do it. It's not what we normally think. He wants them to think about the third person of the Trinity dwelling within them. I used to uh, hear warnings about being careful not to grieve the spirit or cause him to groan. And, And I would almost think of it as if he's in that chair right there, right? And here, I'm, I'm Zeke. I'm about to sin. You know, let's just say it's stealing. And I'm about to do it. And the Holy Spirit is over there saying, no, Zeke, don't steal. Don't grieve me. Don't, don't, don't you do that. But what Paul is saying is, the Holy Spirit isn't in that chair. He's in here. And this hand, this is Christ's hand. And he's in here saying, no, Zeke, don't cause us to do this. I'm in you. Don't grieve me. Don't cause me to groan. I groan. I am in. I feel what you feel. I partake in. You are, you are forcing Christ to be joined. In the case of the Corinthians, they were causing him to be joined in sexual immorality. But in our case, it's be joined in wickedness. And he's saying, no, don't think about it like that. Consider yourself that that's true. And don't do it because of that. That's huge. That changes things. It, it, makes, it makes everything different. Husband, if you're harsh with your wife on a regular basis, do you consider that you have the spirit and he's in you? Do you consider the kind of grief he must feel when you unite your parts of Christ with those kind of actions? Are there prayers being hindered because of what you do in that body? Wife, Do you dishonor or disrespect your husband? Count his words as a little thing, not as to the Lord, but he's just some guy, a sinner. Do your loved ones in the the house, including your children, avoid you just to try not to be on the receiving end of your anger? How does the spirit feel? Is he grieved as you are? Is he as angry as you are with them? Is this how the holy women who hoped in God used to be? Children. Believers especially, what sort of acts have you done with the Holy Spirit inside you which utterly grieve him? What sort of things are you doing? Do you say to your, little, your sibling? And he says, no. Single brother, single sister, do you desire a spouse? This is a good desire. But have you also joined yourself in idolatry in a way that displeases the spirit whom you have within you? 
You shouldn't give in to impurity, either mind or body. That, this letter explains why. Maybe you're a boss or an authority figure. Have you grieved the Spirit in how you relate to those under your charge? Would they bear witness against you? See, but here's the thing. Okay, so I use this text to bring up the negative, but this isn't only negative. So here's where I want you to go. Turn to Matthew 10, verse 19. Just flip over there. And from, from here, we'll jump around just a little bit. This isn't just about negatives that you can do against the spirit in your body. There's a lot of positive that the spirit is responsible for. So Matthew 10, you guys there? Listen to what Jesus says there. When they deliver you over, so he's talking to the apostles and he's telling them about the spirit. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. Okay, Lord, that's super encouraging. So if I'm about to be persecuted in America, he's saying I don't have to fear or worry. I'm going to be given words to speak down to the very hour that I need them. So if I'm two hours out, I don't have the words. I'm still a little nervous. Don't fear. Words will be given. Okay, will they come on a a sheet, a letter? Will I just mystically have words? How will I get them? Will it be scripture I've memorized? Will there be some sort of angel from heaven? Will I hear a voice? Nope, none of that. You'll just speak. And you just need to know that you that your speaking isn't really you speaking. Verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. That's incredible. That's faith. Here's the thing. He's saying if you're persecuted, you don't have to know everything that's going on. When you speak, just know You got the spirit, he's speaking. But wait, how do I know if it's from him? Don't worry. (laughs) This is true, live it. That's incredible. If you're put before kings and princes and, and judges, this isn't a situation where you're on autopilot and unaware that someone's controlling you apart from your will. If, here's the thing. If so, why would he need to tell you? You know, if you're gonna go speak before kings, and you're going to give an explanation for what you believe, and you're going to go on autopilot, spirit's controlling me. He wouldn't need to tell you because you'd just feel it. Or maybe you'd go to, maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. Here's the thing about him telling us that. It implies that the spirit's interactions with us can almost be imperceptible. That's, that's an implication. What that means is that his activity in you, you could be unaware that he's really working in you. That's possible. And the scriptures command us to take it by faith that he actually is. And that at the moments that we actually need him most, he's there. And at the moments when we sin, he's there. And at the moments where we do evil, he's grieved and he groans. But at the moments that we need him, he's empowering and he's flowing. What can be strange about that is, again, you don't perceive it on a Tuesday when you're with the kids, when you're with the spouse, when you feel tired, but you should. Now, here's, here's a, I want to share an imaginary story. My kids have heard this, so you guys be silent. Um, but imaginary story that may help you to kind of enter into this a little bit. Most of us have wondered maybe at one time or another, if you've been switched at birth. What that means is, kids, when you're born, they put you in this little 
thing, a little bat bassinet maybe. It's clear usually. And then you're in a room and you got a tag with your parent's name on it. And so some have wondered, what if they move me to another family? What if they switch me around and I got with the wrong parents? No, or the right parents. <coughs> now, but think about this. Are those really my parents? Imagine your parents are mean and super critical. I mean, they are harsh. They're always like, you can't do anything right. That's all they say. You don't ever do anything well. And you've always been a disappointment to them. And they've been a disappointment to you. But then one day, you find an old dusty trunk in the attic or in the garage. You quietly pick the lock and open it to discover Papers that prove you had, in fact, been abducted or stolen as a baby. These aren't even your real parents after all. They're criminals. It's not legal. They're not legally your parents. They've stolen you. You discover that your real mother was a world-renowned artist and a famous musician. And your real father was a professional ball player, whatever kind of ball you like, and Nobel Prize winning rocket scientist. And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I'm extraordinary. I knew it all along. You also read that they are fabulously wealthy and rich, and they have a lavish inheritance waiting on you. It's a fantastic story, right? Hopefully you get it. That kind of discovery would, it would actually cause you to reinterpret everything about your life, where you came from, your true identity, your capacities and capabilities, the resources available to you, your future and your destiny. After that day, your life would never be the same. You would come down from that attic with new eyes for everyone and everything. Your whole life would feel new, changed, invigorated. But here's the thing. It had always been true. It was true before you went up those stairs. Who you were, your identity didn't change, just your awareness of it. You're, you're just now aware. It was the truth underlying your whole life before you discovered it. It was rooted in history. You had the DNA to prove it. It was true while it was hidden from your sight, but it didn't change your life until your eyes were open to it. Think about that. What we're talking, what I'm talking about here, what Paul's talking about, what the scripture's talking about, what Jesus is talking about is the fact that you have a spirit dwelling in you, that you have an identity with Jesus that God accepts you, sees you, receives you apart from you because he loves you, as was talked about with the children. He brings you into his own and he says, you're mine. And you don't have to do anything to add to that or fix it or make it better. There's nothing you can do. You're mine. I'll have you. I identify with you. You have not just my DNA or my blood. You have my spirit. You're, I'm writing on your heart me, we're one, we're, we're united. Listen to how Paul thought of himself and his identity had become so joined with Jesus, it's almost like he no longer considered himself even existing in a sense. Listen to this. Listen, think. You could say this about you. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. With Christ. What? With him? What are you talking about? I have. It is no longer I who live. Well, who's living your life, Paul? It's Christ who lives in me, in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Incredible. He's, re he's, he's a Christian. He's a real person. He's not a super Christian. He's just a believer. 
Colossians 1.24. Now, listen to Paul. Listen to how he thinks. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, my body, I am filling up what is lacking or left over in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. What? Jesus lacks suffering? Yes, because I am identified with him and he with me so that the life he lives is not my life. It's him living his life through me. And the sufferings I suffer are not just my sufferings, but they're his sufferings, completing what's left over of all the sufferings of Christ throughout the ages. And you know what? When you suffer, those are Christ's sufferings, too. Because you're his body, that union brings you together so that all hurts, all pains, all injuries, he feels them. He knows them. He can enter into them. He doesn't, he's not like in the chair like, oh, look at him over there struggling. No, he's in you. I'm with you. I feel it like Paul. Fill up what is lacking. There's such a union that there's no disconnect. We're united with Jesus by his spirit so that, yes, while joining our body to sin, we join his body to sin. But also while joining our, our body to suffering, we fill up what's lacking in his suffering and what he has to endure down here in us. In a very real sense, our union is the basis for us being seated with him in glory. Think about this, right? Though you're physically located down here, it's because he's there as our representative and because of our unbroken union that we're actually said to be up there. Think about this now. Let your brain go there. Ephesians 2 verse 4. You don't have to turn there. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or our sins, made us alive together with Christ. This is talking like resurrection. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a literal death and resurrection and a literal ascension and a literal seatedness so that you could say, you could answer the question, where is Jesus today? Where is he? He's in heaven. He's on the throne. Where are you seated today? You're in heaven. You're on the throne. You're there. You are there even if you're here because you're so identified with him. You say, how does this work? How is this possible? Because of the marriage imagery. You guys understand? You know, you know marriage? It's a parable. It's a picture. You realize that, right? In the picture, you play a part. The husband is the what part? What body part? The head. The wife is the what? The body. These are not... Christian catchphrases. These are, this is a picture of a human and the head leads the body, but the head cares for the body and the body follows the head. It doesn't question. But think about it. Our parable of that is a shadow, like, like was said earlier in a different way. It's a shadow of the greater thing. And what's the greater thing? This mystery, I tell you, Paul says, speaks of what? Christ and the church. So Christ is the head. The church is the body. You know, a headless body or a bodiless head is a problem. But together, they're, they're one. You know what? If you attack my wife, you attack me, and you're going to deal with problems. I was just thinking, she, we were kind of in a sketchy area, and I had this thought like, man, if somebody messes with my wife down there. I was even thinking, like, I should just text her and be like, are you okay? Because it was a little sketchy, and I thought... I need to go down there. 
because I feel it. I'm upset. I'm angry. Well, I didn't touch you, man. No, you did touch me. You touch me when you touch her. Because, because we're one. But oh, how much more so for the Christian? Jesus, th- think about this. <laughs> does Jesus think about us in this way? You better believe he does. Think about this, so that our physical sufferings are viewed as his. What did he say to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church, right? No, no, no. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, it's me. That's me that you, you mess with Stephen. Do you guys remember? You know what it says about Jesus? It says he's what at the right hand of the father? Seated. But what was he doing with Stephen? What did Stephen say? He said, I see the son of man. Does he say seated? No, he's standing up. You better believe he feels much more than I felt for my wife and my imagination. He feels indignant. He feels something when his people and he looks and he identifies with them. This is not a fairy tale. This is real. And brethren, you have to use your imagination. You know why? Because this is not something that you can see. You, and when I say imagination, I don't mean something not real. I mean, you have to image something you've never seen. You have to put yourself in it. You have to. This is not a bad thing to do. It's like imagining yourself seated in heaven. You have to envision it. You have to, the scriptures all over call us to do this. Consider yourselves dead to sin. That word is just reckon. It's talking about use your imagination a little. Think about your relationship to sin as no more relationship. I am dead to you. Like that, you have to think about this with your union with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. He will place sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, think about how Jesus views you. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom and prepare it for you from the foundation of the world. For, now, now think about what these people did in real life and what Jesus says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus views our union this way. Physical, actual, non-disconnected. This is such a reality that he comforted his disciples with that reality before he left. He said that he and his father would come and make their home in them. You remember this? John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Eternality of God's presence, even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, Lord, yeah, that's kind of cool. The spirit will be in me and he dwells with us and it's forever. It's eternal What else? I will not leave you as orphans. Okay, you said a helper. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You will come to me? Jesus, who I've never seen? Yes, I will come to you. Yet a little while. It's going to happen. 
Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. It's like all these in and in guys, you know, when you read the scriptures and it says in him, in Christ, in the beloved, that's talking about union. That's talking about you guys being connected for real, like a husband and wife, but more. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loved me. And then you keep going. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm going to show myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how are you going to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus says, if anyone loves me, that's what Christians do. He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This isn't some kind of future kingdom manifestation. This is a promise for now and has everything to do with our union in Christ right here and now. Guys, if you let your mind just kind of like go there, it will blow your mind. It will rock your world. It should because your identity is in him. Other scriptures that are little and little considered realities about our union with Christ. This union is why you who are Christians will be raised from the dead. Romans 8:11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through him through his spirit who dwells in you Funeral canceled For real there was a funeral there was a body you could think in a casket The body got life and got back up after three days. And he says, because the spirit that was in him is in you, that's going to happen at your funeral. People will cry, but it'll be canceled. Our union is such that in him, we not only receive God's righteousness, but Paul says we become the righteousness of God. And it's connected to union, to the spirit being in us. Familiar verse, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, union in him. Speaking of that union, our union is the basis for yes to every promise of God when we pray. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him, in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You got to understand that for Paul, this doctrine of union, of the spirit being in you, this is everything. This is everywhere. It is all pervasive in all his theology. Now, here's a silly question that we'll end with. But is there such a thing as a believer who doesn't have God, the spirit of God physically in them or as close as Paul seems to indicate here? No. Okay. Romans 8, 9. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's speak to some of us with insecurities about our identity in Christ and the indwelling of the spirit. Let me ask you a question. Does the smallest child in here who believes have the spirit? Okay. Do they have less of him because they're smaller in size or mental capacity? No. Are they any less of a temple? Those, I mean, that may be a silly question, but you really got to think about that. Because what it means is it, it's value. It's about your value and your identity. And if a child can be just as valuable to God as a preacher, that's incredible. It brings dignity to their, to their person. 
if you're looking at a child, you're looking at a little temple of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter if you or me approve or impress. God says they're a temple. What about the least talented or spiritually gifted brother among you? Is there any less of the spirit in them? Oh, like, well, (laughs) is that how you feel? No, he's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, six through eight talks about if you have the spirit, operate with zeal, lead with zeal, give with generosity, serve with fervor. What about a nursing mom or an underappreciated wife? Does she have the spirit? You better believe she does. You know, I, I heard a, um, an example of a, I think I've shared this with you guys, a janitor, right? There's this preacher, he's on a plane, and he's uh, flying with, uh, you know, you have small talk. And the person next to him says, hey, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, wow, pastor, pretty cool. He says, what do you do? Because you just, I mean, that's what you should do at that point. And he says, I'm a janitor. He's like, oh, okay, janitor. Yeah, I'm a janitor for uh, Buckingham Palace. Oh, for the queen. <laughs> okay, wow. It elevated his, his apprehension of the, the value of that role, not because of what he did, but because of who he's identified with. And like that, a Christian, a Christian, just a Christian, However low they may seem to this world, whatever you do, if you do it for Christ, it elevates your worth and your value big time. If you work, you know what it says in Colossians 3.24? It says, work as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For work? Yeah, for work. What if I just like, what if I'm a janitor? Yeah, you're a janitor for Jesus Christ. And it's glorious. And he says, you're going to receive an inheritance. What about for that mom, that underappreciated wife? You know what Paul says about the the widow who's godly, who's truly a widow? Do you know what it says she did? She washed feet. She showed hospitality. She cleaned up. She did like seemingly normal stuff. And he says, that's a true widow. Honor her. (laughs) You can have a spirit-empowered work in that way, and God says that person's identified as true, full of good works, devoting themselves to those things. That's valuable in my economy. I care about that. So much so that not all widows are able to be supported by the church to go and teach other women how to, how to do these things. But the ones who are godly, who are devoted to good works, boom, that's the godly widow. If I was a woman, that's what I would want to be qualified to be that godly widow in First, First Timothy. So I'll end with this. Just listen to the words of Jesus as he mentions us while praying to his Father and our Father in heaven in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. 
Same love the Father has for Jesus he has for you. But if you just think, I mean, guys, I read my Bible sometimes. I have to read that over and over because it's like I and you and me and we and them and I and they and what is all these like pronouns and stuff? I can't follow this, Lord. It just means that he identifies with you. He says the spirit is in you and you're mine and I'm yours and we're together and the father, you're his and he loves you like he loved me. You know what he said? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. There's nobody like him. And he says, I love you the same. The father loves you the same. Jesus says that. And then Jesus hardened, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants you with him, but through his spirit you already are, even to the end of the age. He says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. He's not with you in theory. He really is in you. I, I'm trying to be a broken record. I am hoping that your union, that you will recognize. It, the best thing that uh, Brother Michael Durham shared with me when I asked him, I said, what would you tell yourself you know, 20, 25 years ago? He said, I would tell myself, that do all the same things, preach the same messages, pray the same probably, or different, however you want, but don't do any of it for self-validation. Something along those lines. Don't do it in order to be approved by men to prove to yourself that you are something. Operate in under the reality that you are in Christ, totally accepted, totally free, totally invited, completely loved, perfectly sufficient, like everything is to the max. It's full. You need nothing. Nothing can add or take away. Now go. That just frees you from man's glory and his, his opinion. And it allows you to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. It frees you up from having to worry about if somebody thinks a certain way about you. Because you, all you care at that point about is what does God think of me? What does he think? That's all we really should care about. And if you're a Christian... If you're a believer, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, the Lord loves you. He accepts you. And you are complete in Him. That is really... I, what I would say is get alone somewhere and just like think about, wait a minute, like the Spirit of God is in me. For real? And He loves me and He accepts me for real? And there's nothing I can add to this? Yeah. That's how you get rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers. When you just believe Jesus, believe his word, and the spirit is in you flowing, when you're, when you're happy, perfectly satisfied in him, you can do all things. It's incredible. That's where we want to be. Amen. Father, I just, uh, I pray that your word would I know there's a lot of scriptures, Lord, but I pray that your word would just reign. And Lord, help us. Help us to live in the reality that as we talk to one another, we're talking to people who are possessed by the Holy Spirit. That's incredible. We're talking to beloved possessions of Christ. And Lord, help us to not sin against you. Help us to not use these bodies to do things that grieve your spirit. Lord, help us to realize the value and the worth that is ascribed to us because we have a spirit in us that is yours. Help us to live in a way that is worthy, that matches our identity. Help us to realize we're Christians and act like it.
Help us to operate in a realm that is just above the stratus of this age and this world. Lord, we love you. We're thankful. And uh, would you be with us the rest of this day? Help us all. Help us through this week. I pray that on a Tuesday when things are tough, your saints would remember these sort of things. In Jesus' name, amen.